Hello and welcome to Case Acquaint. We're continuing our series about crime and mystery associated with the Eastern North Carolina I-95 corridor communities. If you've not yet listened to episode one of this series, we'd encourage you to stop listening now and go back and listen to that episode first, because today we'll refer to some of the cases we discussed therein. For episode two, we're going to stay in and around Robison County. We'll be talking about cases from several years ago that may bear some similarities to previously mentioned cases. Also, for context, we're going to tell you about a few unfortunate and more recent cases that illustrate just how chaotic living in this small region of southeastern North Carolina can be. Will we find the same types of circumstances facing other counties and towns as we make our way north on I-95? That remains to be heard. For now, though, let's continue our tour of Robeson County and maybe visit a couple of neighboring counties. Last episode, we alluded to ways in which Robeson County can be a dangerous place for those who spend their time in East Lumberton. Well, Greater Robeson County also has its share of danger. We've been doing a lot of research on shooting deaths in the Robeson County area, and many of these shooting deaths seem to occur in concentrated areas to members of the same families. One family lost two brothers about a month apart, and on the same block. Both were shot dead. Having this happen to a family can be devastating. Imagine the trauma they must feel having to live in the same general area in which their family members met their ends through violence on two separate occasions. Community activists are starting to begin new initiatives to curb the knee-jerk use of guns to solve all problems with others in Robeson County. They are advocating for opposing gangs to come together for common goals to realize that most of the people in the area seem to be somehow related. So shouldn't there be some common ground? What we did not see much of was the anti-violence activists demanding justice for the next victim of violence that we're going to talk about whose story needs to be told. It's not being reported on in the local media, so we'll talk about it here today. A young mom was shot by a stray bullet as she tried to call police in an attempt to get them to return to the neighborhood where two families were conducting a feud. Yes, you heard that correctly. A bona fide family feud on April 28th of 2016. The mom, 27-year-old Brittany Locklear, was not a part of the family feud conflict, but was visiting another neighbor, according to reports. She was simply in the area. She had previously phoned the police, who had responded, but then left. Later, hostilities resumed and shots were fired. One man was injured, but Brittany was struck in the head. She died right there. An arrest was made in the case, but as of this time, there is no justice yet for this innocent victim's family. Will Brittany's killer receive a plea to a lesser charge, or will the state be brave enough 
to take this to trial. That remains to be seen. Brittany Locklear left behind a young husband and two small children. Next up, a brief history of some of the women who have either disappeared or have been murdered in Robeson County and counties near Robeson in southeastern North Carolina. To the east of Robeson County is the historic city of Wilmington in New Hanover County, North Carolina. This is where the skeletal remains of two women were found in a wooded area near an abandoned building in 2009. They were later identified as 42-year-old Angela Nobles Rothen and 34-year-old Allison Jackson. Allison reportedly used drugs and had a rocky marriage at the time she vanished in the early morning hours from a local bar, but she seemed to have steady professional work and a young family to take care of. Allison was stabbed at least 27 times. And Angela, 42 years old, who had been working as a prostitute and had addiction issues when she disappeared in 2006, had sustained a slashed throat, stab wounds, and had been severely beaten. The location appears to be a convenient dumping ground for someone since Allison disappeared in 2006 and Angela was last seen in June of 2007 yet their bodies were discovered together in 2009. One difference between these two victims and some of the other victims that we're going to be talking about is that these cases garnered lots of attention from law enforcement and the public after the bodies were identified. An investigative TV show did a story about them, and a person of interest was interviewed for the show, along with his wife. Allison's sister was and is determined to keep the pressure on the media and law enforcement to continue gathering evidence as she's done since Allison went missing in 2006. The Wilmington police searched the person of interest's home and car and seized some evidence. Police alleged in their affidavit requesting the warrant that the man they were investigating had already committed numerous crimes against prostitutes. In August of 2007, the man was arrested for the rape of a prostitute within one block of where Allison and Angela were still waiting to be found. He received a plea deal in order to avoid a rape charge, and soon he was back out of jail. He was also accused of attacking two other prostitutes, beating both of them, and raping one. The victim who escaped being raped told police that she was able to protect herself with a knife. Then, another witness came forward to help police produce a composite sketch of someone who looked to be acting strangely in the vicinity of the area where the bodies were later found. The witness told police that he noticed a man with a green tarp draped over the passenger side of his vehicle. The sketch bears resemblance to the man who was lucky enough to get a plea deal that we spoke about just a few seconds ago. It's quite possible that this man is responsible for several deaths but there is no conviction, so families still wait.
Victims have been piling up for years in this southeastern North Carolina region, since the 1990s. Some police believe that it is in part the work of at least two serial killers, each freely operating on his own. I know that's going back over 20 years, but as we know, serial killers don't stop until they are compelled to stop. There is a serial killer who has been dubbed the Long Haul Killer. A truck driver, John Wayne Boyer, whose routes took him through these counties on a regular basis, winding across one state line, back through again, and from one end of the country to the other. Boyer admitted to killing two of the next victims we're about to discuss, and this bearded, nearly 300-pound middle-aged man who admits to having a temper and to hating women is suspected to be responsible for numerous victims over the years. Now, law enforcement from other states have also allegedly connected this man to victims in their cases, but for now, we will be staying with our current theme of Robeson County and the I-95 region. In 1995, Tracy Lynn Johnston, 22 years old, was found dead in Robeson County off Old Whiteville Road. Not much more information about Tracy is provided, and her cause of death was never released. Barbara Jean Anderson was last seen alive at a convenience store on June 10th of 1997, her body was found the next day. She was strangled with a garroted coat hanger. She had been wrapped in bedding and plastic and then dumped in some woods near a new Hanover County intersection. She was 37. Barbara was a drug addict and a prostitute. She was also a mother and a grandmother. She turned to drugs after a divorce and then to prostitution to support her addiction. Barbara's killer has never been identified by police. The body of Alice Renee Holmes, 33 years old, was found in some woods in New Hanover County. She had been shot. The year was 1999. Holmes had been a drug user and a prostitute. She was the youngest out of 11 siblings, and her family still hopes to find the person who killed their little sister back in 1999. In the year 2000, 34-year-old Michelle Hagedone, who was sometimes referred to as Mimi, vanished, seemingly without a trace. Later that year, her decomposed body was found in the woods off an Interstate 20 rest area just across the South Carolina border. She had been strangled with some wire. Her identity went unknown for 10 years until DNA provided confirmation and John Wayne Boyer admitted to killing her. This is everything we currently know about Michelle. Twenty-six-year-old Rosemarie Millette was reported missing on September 15th of 2001. It would be six excruciating months of waiting by her family for any news, and in March of 2002, Rosemarie's decomposed body was discovered. 
She had sustained blunt force injuries to the skull, and her body had been wrapped in bedding and dumped in a wooded area between a rural trucking company building and some railroad tracks. Rosemary left behind a husband and five children. Are you starting to see some similarities between any of these murders? Prostitutes and drug addicts, women who lived on the fringe of the communities, women who may not be missed for a few days, many beaten and strangled and stabbed. Some wrapped in blankets or sheets, others just kind of lightly concealed in a wooded area with some dirt or maybe some pine straw. The trucking company Rosemary's body was found behind was actually a former employer of one John Wayne Boyer, who admitted to knowing Rosemary but stopped short of admitting involvement in her death. A woman whose name was Virginia Beach and who resided in Wilmington was reported missing in 2002. Like many of our other victims, she was said to be a prostitute with a drug habit. Virginia has never been seen or heard from since she vanished and her body has not been found. Virginia Beach, Rosemary Millette, and Michelle Hagedone were all friends. In 2003, 20-year-old Rachel Keyes was found in Pender County in a pond off North Carolina 53. She was from Fayetteville, just up I-95 from Robeson County. Rachel's grandfather expressed frustration to the media, saying he no longer watched crime shows in which technology is used to solve cases. He doesn't see his granddaughter's case getting anywhere near that type of attention. And in fact, he's right, it hasn't. In April of 2003, the remains of 31-year-old Scarlett Wood of Wilmington were found. Her identity was not known for three years, although she had been reported missing several months before she was found. Authorities had, by that point, questioned our truck driver, John Wayne Boyer, in a different case, and they decided to revisit him as a person of interest in Scarlett's case and in April of 2007, Boyer actually admitted to killing Wood. He said they had argued and he pushed her into some furniture, and that was how Scarlett died. Forensic evidence, however, tells a different story. According to the evidence, Scarlett was beaten and stabbed repeatedly, so violently, in fact, that her pelvic bones were damaged by the sharp object used to stab her. For Boyer's guilty plea to second-degree murder, he was to serve a sentence of up to 12 years. On March 23, 2009, Michelle Driggers nude body was found in the driveway of an old cemetery in Lumberton. This cemetery is located off Hestertown Road in Lumberton. There's no record that we could find of the cemetery, nor could we find it on the map. Michelle had been beaten, bludgeoned, stabbed, strangled, and raped. Her belongings were scattered around. If Michelle had been your daughter, sister, or friend, wouldn't you want the person who did this to her caught? 
Michelle's dad put up a $500 reward for information leading to an arrest. When he made the announcement, he also addressed reports in the news about what his daughter was doing in the area. I just think this case isn't coming along fast enough. Whatever she's done, she didn't deserve to be beaten to death, Mr. Driggers said. I just want to try to speed up the process and find the person who brutally killed my daughter. He had no way of knowing the police weren't speeding up anything. In fact, the person who had the motivation and the ability to do that to Michelle has not been caught. Michelle was also said to be a prostitute with a drug habit. So some authorities would say, and have said, coincidentally, less than four months later, according to a newspaper article at the time, another body was found. It was approximately a mile and a half away from Michelle's body's location. This time near some old railroad tracks at 710 Town Common Street in Lumberton. Now that is behind an old building. We don't know how long 36-year-old Lisa Hardin had been dead before she was found by a person walking through the woods. Lisa had also in the past been charged with prostitution and also had been murdered by blunt force trauma and beating. We have no other details about her physical injuries. The scene was also littered with her belongings strewn about, as in Michelle's case. Again, police did an excellent job providing very little information about Lisa's death. They did such a good job avoiding discussion of the case, in fact, that her death isn't even reported on correctly by those who researched the strange deaths and disappearances of Lumberton. That's because the articles were archived and the police haven't released any new information since then. Some articles put the date of Lisa's death at various days in January of 2009 because that's the blanket date given for all archived articles of that particular news source, one of only two or three in the entire area. Even Lisa's obituary doesn't provide a date of death. So until a death certificate is ordered and received, no date given is reliable. It's safe to say, though, that Michelle's body was found, and then a few months later, Lisa's body was found. And it's interesting to note that Megan Oxendine, who we talked about in our last episode, was also beaten badly, naked, and left in the overgrown vegetation. The site of Megan's body is only a half a mile from Lisa's, near the same old railroad tracks. There isn't much known about Lisa, aside from the same things we've been talking about with some of our other victims. She was from the area, and she appears to have been forgotten. Another recent case that we hope doesn't drag on too much longer without punishment being served is that of Little Peyton Fields. Five-year-old Peyton was brought to the Pender Memorial Hospital Emergency Room on November 13, 2017. According to the 911 transcript, the nurse said, I have a five-year-old that was brought in who is now intubated with what strongly appear to be strangulation marks on her neck. Peyton died on November 16, 2017. Her cause of death has not been released. 
Neighbors in Pender County have since been contacting media nonstop, wondering why an arrest has not been made and also why no information has been released from the Pender County Sheriff's Office. Some locals have even accused Earl Kimry, who's been charged with the murder of little Mariah Woods, whose Amber Alert went out um, on November 27th. But by then, young Peyton had already been buried. It isn't really known if Peyton's family had contact with Kimry anyway, and he lived about 40 minutes away until such time as he moved to the county jail, that is. According to a news report, Peyton was staying, along with a sibling, at her maternal grandmother's home. It's not clear who was occupying the house at the time, but we're going to assume that investigators are aware of this information, and we hope there is DNA evidence that will convict the predator of the brutal rape and strangulation of this child. After all, the police did take the trouble to say that they believed it was an isolated incident. There are rumors that the police have arrested the suspect on other charges so they can take their time to build a case. If it is a situation in which someone gained entry to the home, unbeknownst to the family inside, which is highly questionable given the type of dwelling it is, there are sex offenders living within easy walking distance. For the time being, we'll have to assume that these sex offenders have all been cleared or are being watched closely. Pender County Sheriff's Department is in the position to be extremely careful because the same week little Peyton was murdered, a man's 30-year conviction for charges relating to sexual abuse of a minor in next-door Robeson County was overturned. That case was severely bungled. So now maybe we're starting to see why the sheriff's departments in these neighboring counties refuse to release information, why they seal documents so they're not accessible to the public, and why they appear to drag their feet on investigations of import. Hopefully that strategy will help in bringing someone to justice. Meanwhile, Peyton's death goes unpunished. This is a sad situation indeed. We will not be posting information related to Peyton's case on our website due to public requests from the family. But right now, before they get archived, it's pretty easy to find news reports if you're interested. Disappeared. Sarah Graham of Fairmont in Robeson County was allegedly last seen in the early morning hours of February 4, 2015, as she left home for her shift at Walmart. The van she was said to be driving was found abandoned later that day when a farmer called to complain that it was parked on his land. Regular drivers who typically used that road to commute gave the authorities a 15-minute window of time between when she was said to have departed her home and when the van was first noticed parked on the side of the road at or near a field. Sarah's dad and stepmom were both Robeson County Sheriff's deputies at the time, and Sarah had only just moved to Robeson County less than five months prior from Texas. In another shock to the small community, Sarah's stepmom, Connie, was fired from the sheriff's office on March 18th of 2015. But no more information about that was ever provided by the sheriff's office. Also, a new report stated that the FBI considered Connie a suspect in the case, but the report did not elaborate as to why. Volunteers in a canine unit 
combed the area looking for Sarah, and her cell phone and computer were also searched for any helpful information, all to no avail. While they seem to be following leads, Sarah is still missing to this day. The FBI has offered up to $5,000 as a reward for information leading to her location. Sarah Graham is 5'4". She weighs 160 pounds and has brown hair and brown eyes. She is of Native American descent. She wears glasses and has braces. She was 18 at the time of her disappearance. Billy Jean Hammonds. Billy Jean Hammonds had a drug problem, according to family. At 10.30 p.m. on the night of November 26, 2016, Billy left for his mother's house in Lumberton. He's not been seen since. During that time, many local rumors have circulated about what could have happened to him. Some believe Billy's disappearance has nothing to do with an officer-involved shooting of a person by the name of Rebecca Muse Hunt which occurred a few days prior. On the 22nd of November, a Lumberton police officer had made contact with Hunt and Hammonds in a dollar store parking lot. As the officer was placing Hammonds in cuffs, Rebecca Muse Hunt attempted to leave the scene. After ordering Muse Hunt to stop, the officer was hit by the door of the vehicle, resulting in the officer shooting twice. Muse Hunt was injured. After investigators couldn't find Hammonds in order to interview him as a witness, the officer was cleared of all wrongdoing. Billy was reported missing on December 9th of 2016. Since then, Billy's wife, Pamela, has been actively searching and advocating for him. She, along with Billy's dad, who's also named Billy, admits that Hammonds had a drug problem. Billy's dad said, I know a drug dealer killed him because he stole drugs from him. It's all about the drugs. I think he was killed on Snake Road in a trailer. They didn't check the trailers before they tore them down. Pamela believes this story as well and points out that the information came from a law enforcement source. Pamela says that she just wants justice and closure. Billie Jean Hammonds is six foot tall, 175 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. He is of Native American descent. He has multiple tattoos and a scar on the right side of his chest and his right arm. He was 36 when he disappeared. There are many other cases from this area of people who have been murdered or died under suspicious circumstances, as well as cases of the disappeared, both from recent past and long ago. Unfortunately, we don't have the time in this episode to talk about every one, but rest assured, there is a plethora of cold cases which seem to have very little hope of ever being resolved in Robeson County and its neighboring counties. As we progress through this series, that aspect of life along the I-95 corridor will become very clear. The question must become, why aren't these cases being closed? Law enforcement has been quoted as blaming the community for not providing the necessary information to them. They claim to be overwhelmed. That seems like a reasonable claim to me. However, I don't accept it as an excuse. They have a job that they get paid to do. 
the community does not get paid to do their job for them. Also, I understand that if family and friends don't keep pressure on these agencies, the agencies have very little motivation to bother themselves in looking. One thing I have not seen brought up often is the possibility that it may be personally dangerous for these investigators to do too much digging around. I'm sure law enforcement can't be expected to go around admitting they may be fearful of some of the members of their community. But then again, this is Robeson County, where people die for even the smallest slight. It's a place where almost everyone seems to be related to one another in some way, yet nobody has information to share when an innocent person gets shot in the head while dozens of people are present and fighting about petty things. It's a place where, when a sheriff's deputy's daughter vanishes, locals decide amongst themselves it had to be either retaliation for some transgression the father had committed against someone in his community, or it was the family itself who was at fault. But other than that, nobody has anything to share. We invite you to do your own research about any of these cases and other cases that you might find located in and around Robeson County. There are many, many victims who appear to have been forgotten by everyone, even their families. If you're a local and believe there is a case which deserves to have the story told, please feel free to let us know, as we may very well revisit Robeson County in the future. As for the rest of the series, we'll be striking north in the next episode, where there's also crime, corruption, and most importantly, families and victims whose stories should be told. We hope you enjoyed hearing these stories, and we ask that you keep the families of these victims in your thoughts as they fight for justice and truth. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.